Welcome to the Black Belter Podcast. You're listening to episode 68. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by TKD Wear. And TKD Wear are a taekwondo apparel brand. They do a range of t-shirts and polo shirts for men. And for women, they do t-shirts, crop tops and leggings. They also do a range of useful accessories, such as gear bags, shakers and neck scarves. So make sure to check them out at tkdwear.com and you can use the promo code BLACKBELTER for 10% off. All details will be in the description. This week's guest is Phil Lear. Phil is a 7th degree black belt in ITF Taekwondo. As a competitor, he was a 3 times World Cup champion, a 2 times World Team champion and a European Team champion. He has been the head coach of the England national team and an international level umpire at many major championships. He is a current board of director for the ITF. Phil has also organised what was at the time the biggest ever ITF event in the World Cup in Brighton in 2012. I really enjoyed this one. Phil has worn many hats within Taekwondo and brings an opinion and perspective from a number of angles. And today we chat about what got Phil started in Taekwondo, his time as a competitor, his thoughts on some of the rules and styles in today's competition, the ITF concussion protocol and more. So make sure to rate, review and follow and hope you enjoy. What's up, Phil? How are you? Thanks, Minna, for coming on. I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm all good. I'm all good. So, yeah. the day to, so you're back in the gym um, the in the middle of April. And... We've got the under-18s back, yeah. So, um, at the moment, we're allowed to teach outside, and we, we've got a limitless number of um, students that we can teach outside um, at the moment. But, uh, yeah, from the 12th of April, we're allowed to have under-18s, but it's going to be, you know, restricted numbers, and they've got to be kind of socially distanced. They've got to have their, 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 their little spaces in the, in, the, in the studio, in the dojang. So, so it's going to be non-contact. Is that, is that the idea? Or... Yeah, non-contact to begin with. Now, um, this is deemed as phase two of the return to contact sport. Now, phase two means you're allowed to use – you are allowed to use um, – like kick shields and things like that, but you have to stay with the same group all the time. So one instructor works with one group. So you can't then have an instructor working with a different group. So that's the possibility there. Um, and then in between each time, each person that's using the kick shield, if, if it's one instructor that's using it, first of all, the instructor has to wear PPE and then you have to wipe the, the kick shield down. Um, or you can get groups to work with each other. Again, they, they need to wear PPE if they're holding. Okay. Um, but yeah, we kind of we we were still getting our heads around it. I've got punch bags. I've got a punch bag for each person in in in, in the dojang, so that that kind of works. Um, but it just means there's not much space to move. But anyway, we'll yeah. make it work. Yeah, we we did invest in uh, some bobs and some freestanding bags there a couple of months because like that it was looking like people are going to be trying on their own and can't hold pads. So it was, right, well yeah. we can do this when we are in the gym and do get back to the gym we can do something that looks like sparring and, and some different techniques that hitting something without somebody having to hold a kick shield also remember it's not good for your joints to be hyperextending your joints and uh, without making any contact with it on things it's, it's okay to do light light sparring but actual contact sparring you need to hit something um, yeah it's, it's it's not good for you yeah for so, sure yeah. so i suppose to take it back to yourself how did you get started in taekwondo where the where the journey begin for you Wow. Um, started when I was 15 um, and I was, I was bullied at school. Um, it was six months of hell. 
And I, I, I would just walk out of the, the classroom. The guy would be there, just come up, punch me in the face. There was no reason behind it. He didn't want money. He didn't want anything. He just wanted power over me for whatever reason. I just, you know, he just didn't get on with me. He didn't like me. Um, and yeah, end of games, he'd wait for the, the PE teacher to go into the school and then would bundle me. And like all the other kids, it's a, it's a, it's a typical kind of school scenario where everybody's around going shout, you know, shouting fight, fight, fight. But there was only one person fighting. I had no confidence because he would just beat me down every single time. Um, and it got to the point where I, I didn't want to go to school anymore and really just wasn't enjoying the whole experience. Um, and at that time I was working locally uh, in a supermarket. I lived in this little village and this guy that was there, he was kind of like the local hard nut. Uh, his name was Rob, I remember. And, uh, but he was working in the same supermarket as me. So you had like a real yin and yang, uh, a, a kid that was, had no confidence in him at all. And this guy literally was the hard nut, would walk around the, 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 the village and everyone would like cower. Um, and we would just like at our break, we would, we'd sit down and I, I'd, I'd tell him a little bit about what was going on. Cause I didn't have the confidence to like tell my parents or anything like that about it. So I would tell this guy and he's like, well, Phil, do you want to do something about it? And I was like, well, yeah, but I don't know what. And, and he was doing, actually he was doing WT Taekwondo. Um, okay. and, uh, he was like, look, I'll train you. It's like, really? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, we uh, we got together and he took me running. Um, I went to his house. He had a punch bag there. He'd show me how to throw a punch, how to throw a kick. Um, and then this kind of went on and I, and I managed to avoid this, this guy from school for quite a period of time. And then it got to the point where he said, look, Phil, you've got to stand up to this guy and you've got to say to him, let's just get it sorted once and for all. I was like, okay, okay. All right. I'll do it. I'll do it. And I got to school one day and this guy, kid came up to me went to hit me and I went just stop stop for a second right let's just let's get this sorted out once and for all you name the place you name the venue and we'll get it done like that and it was like yeah all right I'll have some of that so we we organized this time and it was like a lunch time and it was my form uh, my, my my classroom because my classroom was away from the, the the main school building it was like an art room so you know it was like well well um, away from everything else in, like with, with regards to the school and it got to like midday and uh, literally half the school were in this classroom and they were like you there was there was no sitting room. everyone was standing and it was like the, the noise was horrendous I don't know how the teachers didn't realize something was going on so he was in there waiting for me literally like this <laughs> I walked in I walked in and um we just started fighting and it was the most pathetic fight you could ever imagine. I don't think one punch was thrown. It was literally just grabbing. And I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. And, but what I realized was, is I, I was actually quite strong and I managed to throw him across the table and he's hit, he hit his head on a ceramic sink. Cause it was like in the art room. Yeah. So, <laughs> so then he kind of got up a bit dazed and we kind of like wrestled around a little bit like this. I went to throw a kick it was a terrible kick. He grabbed my foot and I was like hopping around, grabbing hold of him. I managed to pull him down to the ground. And then when I got him down on the ground, I turned him over and I managed to pin him down with my knees on his arms. You know, like, I don't know if you've got like a younger brother or sister, always do this. Like I, I did with my older sister, I'd pin her down 
when I was like about nine or 10 years old with my knees and then just like kind of like tap on the chest like this, just a, as a, yeah. a bit of a fun thing. I managed to get him on the ground, my knees pinning him on his arms. Um, and yeah, so I literally, I put, I grabbed him around the throat and I drew my fist up like this. Everybody like wanting blood, kill him, come on, <laughs> hit him, hit him like that. And I just, <laughs> I, shout, I said to him, say submit. And he didn't say anything. Say submit. And I, I shouted it louder. And he just went, submit. And then I just looked up at everybody. I said, I hope you're all happy. I got up and I walked out. Not one punch was thrown that day. But um, but after that day, yeah, he, he just left me alone. But what I realized was this guy that I learned from in the supermarket, he was about he was 17. I was 15. He didn't teach me any martial arts. What he did was he built my confidence up. He helped me to believe that I could actually do it, that I could stand up for myself. And I think for me, this is the biggest skill that we as martial arts instructors can teach the youth. The confidence that they, they, we can build their confidence up to help them to believe in themselves. And that's what saved me that, that, that day. Um, I'm not saying that violence is the answer, but in that case, it kind of was for me because I dealt with the situation. I think sometimes maybe schools, they, they, they kind of, they're, they're a bit scared about doing stuff and actioning things because of the, the consequences, but yeah, it worked for me. Yeah. Like you said, so yeah. That, that's, that, that, that's kind of how I got involved in martial arts. And then he, he was like, right, okay, so you want to start training now? And then I was like, yeah, I want to start training. And um, I think his WT class was, was actually closing down. So I went and joined Shotokan Karate. I did that for a bit. Um, I did some boxing. I did some kickboxing. And then I, then I moved away, actually. I moved away to another country. I went and lived in France for a couple of years. And then I started doing this thing called Budokan. Trained in that for about a year and then came back to the UK in 1990 and then started Taekwondo. Yeah. So I was about 19. Bounced around a few martial arts along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Before settling Had a little Taekwondo. play around. Yeah. Well, at that time, you know, we were all watching the Jean Claude Van Damme movies and um, uh, the, the, the one for us was No Retreat, No Surrender. I mean, okay. a lot, not a lot of people will know that one, that, that Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, but it was one of the original ones. Um, and that was, it was really poorly shot and really poorly acted. But um, it was like, wow, we want to be like that guy. Um, and then, of course, Karate Kid as well. Karate so. Kid, yeah, that's one, of, that's one of my favorites. That was one for, for me, the original Karate Kid. And uh, when he won it with the big trophy at the end, I was like, <laughs> that, that was it for, I was like, I want to win a big trophy. I want like one that. of them. That was kind of it, yeah. That was it. That was it for me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I love that movie. Uh, yeah, but what's mad, like like you said, like, but he gave it the confidence, like, from hitting just hitting the punch bag and trying to kick, like, like not actually even like no sparring or experience, like you said, it just yeah. like a bit of built you up from hitting the punch bag to that feels good to all right. Let's let's see what happens when I have a go off this guy. It's something that I do now, even in the classes. I, I, it's for me, it's about posture. You know, I, I, I in fact on. Social media the other day, I put a post up. There's a photo of me as this little scrawny kid, like a little plump kid in the corner, away from everybody else in this school photo. 
and my my shoulders are hunched over and I'm down like this. And I'm kind of like grinning a little bit, but I, I just had no posture. I had no belief in myself. Um, and what what happened in that process of me just going and training with this guy, him telling me that I can do it, because if you think about the self-talk that we have, and I do quite a lot of this nowadays with, with, with the, the other work that I do in hypnotherapy, you know, our self-talk, how we speak to ourselves. It's so important because you're always listening to what you're saying to yourself. So if you're saying negative things that you're not good enough, that you can't do it, of course, you're going to believe it. So then you've got to say the other way. So it's like when you're competing, when you're competing, you know, when you went for, when you were competing in 2017 for the world title, you know, I'm sure there was no doubt in your mind you were going to win it. You knew it from the moment you stepped on the mat. Yeah. You have to believe in yourself. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And definitely, like, that was, like, like for me there, that was the, the probably the most kind of confident I felt going in, just like you said. Not that I was more trained or more, like, it's kind of a, it's a weird, it's just belief that you're good enough, I suppose, you know, like, like you said, uh, like, and that idea, I suppose when it comes to competition, like only one person can win, you know what I mean? And then you have to believe that why can't that one person be you? You know, it's that kind of that that kind of uh, the kind of thinking. And like even for that, I remember going in like thinking that would have been the first time I had five fights to win. Every other time would have been four. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. five fights, that's a lot of fights. <laughs> you know, to win. Can I win? And I was thinking, can I win five fights? And I think, well, somebody's going to win five fights here today. So why can't I win five fights? You know, it's yeah. that kind of thing that why if somebody has to win, so why can't it be you? You've got to start by believing in yourself. It's the only way. Yeah, hundred percent. And like, did you compete then in, in any of those martial arts, or were you just were you just training, or were you just for like physical and I suppose mental development, or was there competition to to your training? Um, not not in the early years. I mean, when I was doing um, Shotokan, no, I, I I didn't I didn't compete. And then, and I only did that for about I think it was about nine months. I did Shotokan for, and then it just wasn't for me. I did boxing. I was supposed to go to a boxing fight, never got there because the, the van broke down on the way there. So <laughs> we never got to the boxing match. Um, and the kickboxing, that was a bit of playing around at the beginning, but I, I kind of returned to kickboxing once I started Taekwondo. So I did Taekwondo for, well, I started from 1990 and then I started to kickboxing again in 92. Um, and then of course I was competing in Taekwondo at that, that time as well. Um, and I won the British, uh, it was a BKBU title, semi-contact, uh, middleweight title. Can't believe I made middleweight. That's under 75 kilos in those days. It's just not even possible. I'd have to cut a leg off now to get that weight. But um, yeah, so I won that title in uh, 92. And then, um, yeah, just competed as a color belt and then on as a black belt in Taekwondo. And then like when you got the black belt in, in Taekwondo, was there any kind of competition after that, like in terms of uh, representing England, anything like that? Yeah, so I had a bit of a journey because um, when I, 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 I moved to Malaysia in 1994 and I trained with a guy there um, uh, who's uh, my, my, still my instructor, Grandmaster Tan. Um, and he changed my whole outlook because I didn't think, again, I didn't think that I would ever be able to get to the national level I, I, or international level. Um, I thought I was just going to be another, just another black belt. But again, somebody else who really influenced my life and and, and helped me to believe in myself. Um, and I spent two years in Malaysia, came back, and uh, then tried out for the national team. And of course, at that time, you know, the, there was only one ITF, so uh, it was really very, very competitive at the time. 
Um, and so I came back from Malaysia in 96 and then I made the England team in 97 and we went to Slovakia uh, for the Euros and to St. Petersburg for the World Championships and then stayed competing in England, I think, um, well, sorry, for, for England until 1999. Then I had a break, did a bit of coaching and umpire, umpiring and a bit of coaching, came back to competing, back to coaching umpiring coaching umpiring and then yeah. retire <laughs> so i've been quite busy yeah and what, what was your first experience competing at a, i suppose that kind of level going to a world yeah, european so, championships yeah european championships was um slovenia in um is uh, zreche in slovenia in, in 1997 oh it's just incredible and just being part of the team you know, when you when you go to an individual tournament as an individual, you you know you're literally just doing it for yourself. But when you're there as a team and you're you're you're, you're sleeping in the same hotel, you're eating at the same table as your teammates, it just creates something so special. And you have a belief within you that you can you can do anything. Um, and then you know the way you support each other. It was the, my my first experience of having like a, 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 a I think it was a three day tournament at that time. So first, first time experiencing the three-day tournament, I hadn't had that before. Um, and it was amazing. Um, yeah, great, great memories. Yeah. Yeah, at that time, even individual would have been, like to make the, to be part of it, it was only one spot, but one person per category, wasn't it? Back up around that time. Yeah. Like, I think, one person per category, that's right. Yeah. Like, and obviously... only six in a team. Six in a team. Oh, and all yeah, six yeah. people had to do all the events. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember Adrian has said a couple of times about that, and like that's that's like when you see now, like the the way, like people you have ten, and sometimes like we, sometimes we Ireland we we don't really don't do power or special technique. Like we have ten to to split between the patterns and and the sparring, and we don't yeah. we pretty we struggle to find guys out of those ten that would possibly do power or special technique. So I can't imagine you know picking just six and going right. You have to do all four. You have to do all four events. I mean, it was it was good in many ways because I I think it made all round athletes because you had to be good at least at at least three of the four events, um, and it forced you to train that event as well, right? You're you know you're doing knife hand, you're doing flying psychic, you've got to practice those events now, and you've got to become good at them. Um, you know, I think now we have a situation where we have really good individuals, like amazing individuals. The the standard and the level, I mean, the speed of of the fighters now is just unbelievable. But in those days, you had quite a few people that would have a crossover. They would be doing, they'd be winning gold in patterns and gold in sparring or being medaled in, in both events. Um, and the same thing with the power and the special technique. You know, uh, there's a lot of Polish competitors did it many times. Um, you know, you've got Julia Cross as well, did it you know, many, many times. They're just these competitors who had this ability to be able to 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 go in any event, but but be the best in those events, you know, uh, and and not just focus on a single thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it. There's it hasn't been anybody for a while who has been like we have people who compete in both, but we don't have people who are winning in both. You know, like you said, like like people like you mentioned there, um, like Julian and that. Like it's like I think. Like Maxine Sil Sylvia, like Sylvia Faragu as well. Yeah. She's, she's been amazing. Maxine Bujold, yeah. 
Yeah. Amazing. He's, but to uh, do it in the same event, the, sorry, the, the, the same competition, I think is, is what is, what is, you know, because you've got people that have done it in separate events. Those people who've managed to do it in the same event, that's incredible to be yeah. that prepared. Yeah. Well, I think it kind of only makes sense that you would see people kind of specialize more as well. Like as, cause you would imagine, you would hope over time that just like with all sports that the competitors get better, you know, that's what you would hope are like more athletic, faster, stronger, all those sort of things. So, you'd imagine that you'd have to specialize down a bit to be able to get to the top like to be the best spar you'd have to specialize down to compete with all the rest of the spars and the same in patterns you would want to you would think like just as the level grows it becomes harder to spread your time and you have to really narrow down and niche down to your event i mean i think it's it's a difference between having somebody who's an amazing 100 meter sprint athlete and then somebody who's an incredible decathlete you yeah. know someone who can do you know the, the multiple events I have to say though, Jamie, I do miss the the team of six. I I I, I like it because um, it just gets you know you get some people that would go all the way to a, to a world championships just to do team power test and in, and individual team, sorry sorry individual individual power test and then team power test. So you 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 you're, you're traveling that that distance. Now you should be good. You should be the best of what you're doing if you're going just for individual and then you're going just for that team event. But it just made us have to work harder. We worked harder. We, I think we became better all-rounders because of it. And I think also you got a, a whole range of coaches, people that are coaching now that went through that experience of the six-person team who can now coach all the elements because they know them. Yeah. You know, if you've got somebody who is the, the, the best spar in the world right now, and, I, and I'm sure you're gonna think, you can think of loads of people, and then ask them to create or to help create a world champion in patterns, are they going to be able to do it? Are they going to be able to create a world champion in special technique? So the experience that we had as competitors going through all of those four events have actually helped to define and, and, and assist us in, in, in our levels of coaching. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like I suppose that's a good point. Yeah. Specialist, maybe the specialist athlete isn't the worst, but you don't really need a specialist coach. Well, at least not too many specialist coaches. As is, like if you said, if you have too many in, inspiring, um, you struggle in patterns. You start, it's just kind of what we have a small bit as well. Like we have a lot of really good sparring coaches. Well, we're, we're, well, it's not to say they don't know their stuff that we don't have people who can coach patterns in that, but we have a lot more people who can do sparring than patterns. And like you said, special technique, then we, we you go down the list, we have even less people for special technique and power. So yeah, that's a it's a good point. Yeah, but was it was am I wrong in saying the ITF from potentially looking or like the tournament committee now we're looking at expanding the team from even the ten to maybe twenty? Um, I, I haven't seen any plans just yet, um, but I think any rule changes they they the, the rule changes they, they they can't happen just instantly like that now. I yeah. think there there'll be any any um, ideas of rule changes. There'll be a testing period where people will see you know does it work and. Um, obviously, I'm kind of a little bit involved in in, in how things um, will be developed in, in in that response because we we, we kind of uh, on the ITF board we will get to see any kind of proposals that come forwards. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's it's. Um, I, I think I think there will be some developments over over time, but I don't think that they will be very drastic. They will be step by step, and only if on a kind of you know if, if it's seen as a way to improve where we are we're at right now i think most people are quite happy to keep things as they are for yeah the moment. yeah i think the i think the 10 like the, i think they like the, like 
I think it's how you approach the, the team events. Like you said, with six, it was kind of who's the best team across four events. And the 10 is kind of similar, but yeah, you have a bit more range. I think if you expand it out to 20, it's kind of you're looking for not so much the best team across four events, but you're looking for the best team pattern. You're looking for the best team sparring team. You're looking for the best, you know what I mean? It's kind of the best team within that single event as opposed to maybe the best team across all four events. It, it kind of depends on how you want to how you want to arrange the overall kind of tournament as it relates to the team. I think that there may be a, an opportunity to to create different events, like new events, rather than, than connecting it to a European or World Championships, making sure maybe a standalone event where there's a team event and you can have, you know, as many as you like, and and then you can really make the best of those teams. There, there, there's not, you know, I don't think there's any, any reason why that couldn't happen. Um, that could be quite an interesting kind of prospect, actually. Yeah, yeah, we've we've ran like uh, on a lower level, like an interclub. We've ran some team competitions, you know, teams of three in there, whatever, with the kids. So that gives them a chance, maybe experience a bit of team patterns, a bit of team sparring, um, and it's all a bit of all a bit of fun in there. You know, give people like it's not even it's about getting people a couple of matches. You know, not necessarily about the best team, just like a bit of fun, experience the team. And I think it could be like you said, it could be interesting to do that on a on a higher level, a more competitive level, to do just a, just a team event and. Uh, it could be it could be interesting because there's always a good buzz around the team event on a Sunday at the championships, so it oh, could be okay. interesting to do that for a day, a weekend. Maybe maybe it wouldn't take a week to do, you know, but maybe it might take two days, a Saturday and Sunday kind of a thing. Yeah, oh, definitely. I, I think so. Yeah. So then, like for you, then when did you start? Kind of when did you get into into, into coaching and and, and starting your own club? So, um, well, when I came back from Malaysia in 96, I took over a club um, where I am right now in this, I'm, I'm in a small town called Crowborough, which is in East Sussex, down in the southeast of England. Um, and it had about 30 students at that time. So I took over that club um, and I was still working and teaching at the same time, but it was quite difficult because my work schedule was quite busy. Um, so I had somebody else who was assisting me, my brother-in-law at the time, he was helping me and he was teaching classes when I couldn't be there because sometimes I was working seven days on the trot. Um, and then and then gradually uh, I got to the point where um, I was ready to become a full-time Taekwondo instructor. And it was only when I became a full-time Taekwondo instructor that I realized the opportunities were, that were out there that I could actually do it. Um, because I was able to, to give more time to create more classes and to, and to teach more people. So that happened about 90, would have been 1999, I think. Yeah, about 1999. And that was a, a, a big step for me, a massive life-changing uh, point. Um, and then it just meant that I was able to give a bit more time to my students, a bit more time to myself. I trained myself for the 99 World Championships in Argentina. Um, and that, that, was, that was really good uh, preparation. And then when I came back in, um, well, I think it was around 2000, I started doing a bit of umpiring. Um, I, I had a bit of a, I had a, I had a, I had a fallout with the national team at the end like beginning of 2000 and I felt it was time for me to step away from the team. It was my, my choice to step away. I didn't feel um, very happy with how things were at that time. So I stepped away and then uh, instead I thought, well, I still want to be involved with the European championships because it was all about um, going for Edinburgh. 
So I managed to become an umpire. So I was an umpire and uh, I, uh, I umpired there and then I umpired in 2001 in Spain as well. And also in Rimini at the World Championships, I umpired there. Um, yeah, and also actually in Rimini, it was quite interesting with Grandmaster Donato Nadizzi. We both did a pre-range sparring sequence uh, in the opening ceremony for, for the general, which was amazing. That was a, a wonderful, wonderful memory. Um, 2002, I was coaching, coached in uh, Czech Republic and for the Euros and Puerto Rico for the Junior World Championships. And I think I continued doing a bit of coaching. Yeah, coached in Poland, in Warsaw for the World Championships until 2005. And then 2005, I, I, I returned to, to competing again because uh, we had a, a new coach, uh, Master Tom Dennis. I think you might know him. He's... Yeah. Um, one of our he's one of our really successful coaches in in England, so um, yeah, and, and and just a few of us got together and we 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 got a few of us got selected for the team and we had a, a, a you know brilliant European Championships in Italy. We won the um, team pattern, um, and then we had a World Championships in Dortmund and we won the um, team power. Wow. At the World Championships, so all in 2005. So that was good. Um, yeah, competed in 2006 and then back to coaching 2007, uh, 2008, then back to umpiring 2000. It really sounds like I'm chopping and changing, yeah. but it's because I, I, I like to keep myself busy, all right? Um, and also there, there are other people, like other people that were, that were there coaching that were really good at what they were doing. And I, you know, I still wanted to be involved, but I but I would always kind of look, well, you know, where, where, where can I really um, give my most, give my best and have the, the most kind of enjoyable time for myself. And I really enjoyed umpiring, actually. It was a really, really uh, enjoyable experience because you, when you're around those, those international umpires who are all, all so incredibly professional, it raises your level as well. Um, and I think as well, the, the, the umpires as well, you know, um, it, it's a great opportunity to get together, to discuss things, to discuss decisions. Uh, and, and I can tell you, you know, the umpires don't always agree with each other about decisions that are given and the reasons why and, and, and things like that. Um, but it is, it's a great opportunity for them to get together and to really discuss things and sometimes to get to the bottom of, you know, how you make a, a certain decision based on what you've seen and, and what's happened. Yeah. That's been great. Do you do you have a preference between coaching and umpiring? Do you, ha do you have one? Or is it two different experiences for you? If you had to pick one, which one do you think you prefer? Yeah, I really separate them down because the thing is, umpiring is great um, because you really feel like you're, you're, you're part of something so big. You know, you're part of that big, that, that, that big machine that, 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 that needs moving all the time. Um, and there, there is an absolute buzz for when you're center refereeing at a world championships or a world cup, that's just incredible. You know, just, just to be there and to be part of that action. And you've got literally the best seat in the house. So that, that's amazing. Um, coaching is different. I'd say, I'd say even more and more different to competing because I really enjoyed my competitive career and I, I did, I did well, you know, for, 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 for where I came from and, and, and the level of training that, that I was able to do. And I enjoyed winning. But when you're a coach and your competitor wins, 
it feels it's 10 times better when your competitor wins after the work that you've put into that competitor and you're part of that experience and you see the joy on their face, that feeling is unbelievable. So yeah, I'd say that coaching has its parts, which are great. Um, the admin side isn't so nice. That's not yeah. the part that I really like. Um, and also because you have, sometimes you have clashes with personalities on the team that you have to resolve. And I was a head coach for, uh, for four years and you have to resolve those things. And, and also, you know, you've got to get like the parents involved as well. It's really important to get the parents involved because it's their kids and, you know, you can't just kick yeah. the parents out and go, go away. They're part of the whole process. So you've got a lot more of a, a dynamic going on there that, that you, that you're dealing with. Yeah. So it's different. It's a bit like saying, you know, I don't know who, who do you love most in your family? You know, it's, it's kind of like it's they're, 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 they're separate, but they're separate for, for different reasons. Um, but yeah, amazing opportunities to do the, 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 these things at the highest level. Yeah. Well, I suppose it comes to even, like I said, when you go to just like, there's a difference as a competitor when you win as yourself versus when you win with the team to, like you said, when you win as a coach to, you know, when your competitor wins, when you're their coach. And like said, I suppose it's a different feeling to when you're umpiring. Yeah, it's, a, it's a just like all enjoyable feelings just different feelings i suppose the different feelings of enjoyment and fulfillment but even even as a center referee whoever's arm is is raised at the end you know in, in that final match you know it's it feels great i mean there's always going to be one person who's upset there's nothing you can do about that you know it, it's it, there's always going to be one person disappointed but the the elation from the other side when you see the coach and the competitor you know it's it's really nice to be part of that and to be part of that experience you know, our whole, our, the events that we have are incredible. The, the emotion that, that's created from them. Um, I, I, I just, I, these are incredible life experiences that will keep with, you know, whether people retire um, as a competitor in their mid twenties or thirties, you know, if they've done well, if they've competed at the highest level, they're never going to forget those experiences. They're going to stay with them forever. Yeah, for sure. And so then like in terms of, what, what do you kind of think of the, the current styles, I suppose, and maybe the way the rules are at, at the moment versus maybe the way they would have been, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? I mean, rules are, rules are very different now. Like the sparring rules, uh, in those days, you had two points for a flying punch. Um, and uh, it was one point for a kick to the body, uh, two points for a kick to the head, uh, three points for a jumping kick to the head or if you did a jumping kick to the body it was two points instead of one point so you'd always add, you'd always add one point if you were jumping okay um yeah and, and then i think what happened was the when when the when the the points rule changed um it kind of became more more with more about the hands than about the feet so there's a lot more punching involved but saying that you still got some competitors who can kick from some unbelievable angles and do some incredible things that will literally just come out of nowhere. You know, um, you, know you think of Huda Carlos, Timothy Boss, you know, these, these people can kick at such incredible speed and at such incredible angles. Um, so, yeah, I think that the, the rules have really changed the way our competitors fight now. There are some rules that I, that I don't necessarily like and there's some rules that I don't, I didn't like to enforce as an umpire, but you have to enforce the rules. You know, the, 
the deduction of a point for grabbing uh, and then what is a grab you know when when they clinch and they come back out again is that a grab you know i i, I always try to be very consistent with everything because some people though if they if, if people clinched the umpire would give a foul to both whereas yeah. For me, if it's a clinch and they pull away, there's no advantage gained. I, I'd always look, is someone gaining an advantage by this grab? And if someone was gaining an advantage, then I didn't implement the foul. Um, yeah, and the scoreboards, I've always had an issue with the scoreboards. I don't think the competitors should see the scoreboards. You know, there was something magical in the old days about not knowing the result until the jury president stood up and then went like this. Okay. Something magical about that because you just didn't know. Whereas you already know the result before your hand, your arms lifted. Yeah. I well, know it can flip. I sometimes with the timings, cause I know that with the electronic system that sometimes it can literally flip in the last second, but uh, maybe Maybe they see that it's like 2-2 two, two or 3-1 or something like that. But to actually see the scores, that's why there are so many complaints. Because the coach gets upset because they haven't seen a, uh, a score being put on by, by an umpire. But maybe the umpire just didn't see it. Yeah. Well, I think definitely from a competitor, I definitely prefer when I spar with the scoreboard. Like if, if, there's, if there's times now where there's a competition and there's no scoreboard like it does affect like how the, the styles and how you how you like in the match what you do like knowing the score is a big thing but yeah. it's like that but i think knowing the score is a big thing in early all sport like you know like like i suppose like in soccer look it's easier to keep the score but if you didn't know then how would you know to attack or defend like i think it's i think knowing the score i think the scoreboards kind of kind of have to be there to some degree it's the thing is we we, we, we with football we got it's 90 minutes um it's a long period of time um, and there are different tactics that are involved there, like the, 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 the counter. And I don't know, I, I guess you can find a relation to it in, in Taekwondo. But there was something about, you know, not knowing the result until the end, which meant you had to keep fighting. All you knew were the warnings and the fouls. And so you just had to keep fighting all the way to the end. Um, whereas I think, unfortunately, what's, what's happened with some of the, some of the fights in the scoreboards, and I, 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 know, I know that there's some competitors that you'll know in the past that did this a lot, the last 15 seconds would just dance around, walk out the ring, goad the competitor, and it just really made the event look quite bad, I think. You know, it was, it was not very sportsmanlike. It was not very competitive. Yeah. That, that's my only thing. I can see the advantage and I got the advantage because I used the advantage myself as a coach. You know, where, when, um, when Matt Cadle was fighting Julio Carlos in the final of the 2013 World Championships, you know, I could see what's happening. So, of course, I'm, I'm coaching Matt based on what I can see on the scoreboard. Yeah. So he knows he's got to move and just keep him away for the last five seconds because anything can happen with that guy. You know, Julio Carlos can just bring something from nowhere. So, um, yeah, I definitely see the advantage of it. I, I think maybe from a spectator's point of view, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I, I think like you said before, though, and you could only see the warnings. I don't think people putting it out and how many warnings they got and how that affected the score until you can see it on the scoreboard. When you see that, like, I oh, got 
nine warnings on and every time that's a point off and the score is flipping I think that really makes people think I better stop stepping out I better stop falling over I better stop kicking the you know these kind of the silly things that you can avoid Um, I think with the scoreboard you do see the effect of the warnings more as you said with the unsportsmanlike stuff and stepping out at the end like there's some part that says it's it's smart it's playing the game but like you said I don't I don't like like I have done it and but I don't like it. Whatever about somebody stepping out, I prefer you'd prefer it to be a bit more discreet than just turning around and just walking out. You know, you see guys that do that. I don't. I don't like. I said I don't like that. I would like to think. I would like to see a harsher penalty for somebody deciding the last ten seconds. I'm just going to walk out. Um, I think, like you said, it's it's not the most sportsmanlike um thing to be thing to just avoid and, and give the person no chance of winning or coming back. Or if that's the best tactic you have, then you know. I mean, that, 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 there is the rule of, of getting a foul if, if in the last 10 seconds you're avoiding sparring. But it's, and yeah, you could say maybe the competitors left it to the last minute, but I can tell you, I've seen some incredible matches. People like Daniel Jawa in the last few seconds turning a match around. Thomas Barada in 2003, he was losing against Russia. And the last round, he came out on... I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the fight, but that last round is incredible. The number of headshots that he hit. Um, and it just it just made people fight to the very end. Um, I don't know. I, um, I, I, you know, I see the advantages of it. And as a competitor, the, the problem is you've got, you got juniors. I don't know if you've got like juniors who use scoreboards. They spend so much time looking at the scoreboard that they forget to fight and then they get hit. Or I had a junior once who in one round was red was blue in the next round, but thought they were red in that round. So I kept thinking, yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm going, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, engage, engage. You've got to get stuck yeah. in. So, um, yeah, I think there can be confusion for color belts, maybe like at a World Cup or something like that, if they're, if they're not trained in it and they're not sure, because you have to almost, that's almost like a training session in itself, isn't it? You know, learning how to use the scoreboard to your advantage. Yeah, de- definitely. I, I remember the first time I would have competed with a scoreboard, was it was the World Cup in uh, 2008. And uh, I, I remember I, I was feeling like I was going, I never looked at the score because I didn't really look at the scoreboard. I didn't look at the scoreboard because I hadn't competed with one. So I was just sparring and I felt like I was winning the way I was moving. And like, I thought, oh, I'm definitely winning here. And then by the end, the referee said, stop. And I looked and I was after losing. And like, and then I was like, oh, that makes sense why Adrian was telling me to attack and not move and all this <laughs> other. But like, again, like it was my first tournament, that kind of big and like everything just goes over your head and you kind of go and go, geez, I thought I was winning. And you know, and uh I do think that is a big thing, like you said, with juniors, and I think like the same to happen to me, where you think you're winning, or you're like you either don't look at the scoreboard and think you're winning, or something, and or else you spend too much time looking at the scoreboard, and that takes over. But I think with, with our color belts, and even like on the like the color belts in our tournaments, we nearly every ring now we have the, where they have a scoreboard, a TV screen, and a scoreboard. So like even like under ten yellow belts are competing with scoreboards mostly. So. I think I don't know we'll have to see it in maybe five six years time that might help if you start them using the scoreboard earlier is it something they're just used to by the time they get to to into an international to- tournament you know I think that, that in Ireland be- though you, you've, you've got you've got a great setup you've got you've got you know all, all of your rings of, of, uh, of electronic scoreboards so people yeah. grow up with it they're used to it yeah you know, most other countries they don't always have that some countries do have it some countries are still working just with flags you know, and clickers. So, um, yeah, it's not everyone yeah. can afford it. 
Yeah, like yeah, so I'm hoping. I think, and I think it could be an advantage if the scoreboard is something that is going to stay, which I hope it is. Um, it might be something that hopefully we'll see the benefits of coming soon because, like, we have had the scoreboards for a long time in the black belt divisions, but down in the color belts and, and starting them, like as kids being able to see the score, and you do see even then they they struggle with the score. But they they they're looking and they think, oh, I'm winning, I'm winning, and like they look at the wrong color, like all that stuff. It's better. Maybe those mistakes will be made earlier than at a world of European Championships. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. I think the holding one, though, like you said, is an interesting one for the foul because oftentimes it's very much like even the angle of that the referee is at to the competitors because like sometimes you know, it depends on how it looks when the hand comes, comes over the back. It can look like, well, that guy was holding. But if you saw that from the other side or sometimes you see it like if the, if the, if the camera is at a different angle, you're like, well, why was that warning? That wasn't holding because you're seeing it from a different angle. But when the referee sees it from there, it looks like, well, that guy was holding. Or it's a, It can be a very a grey area one you know a very ob- uh, subjective one wh- which guy was holding and it, and it can sometimes just be for a split second exactly and and that, that, that's why I always think it's got to be it's got to come down to who's gaining an advantage is there an advantage being gained here um, I remember uh, when was it now 2000 and it would have been I think it was 2002 in the Czech Republic, and it was uh, Daniel Jawa against Zel Galasek. And uh, I think it was 2002. Someone might, yeah, I have to kind of have a think. See, the 2002 or 2003. Anyway, so it was a great first round fight. I mean, they were drawn together in the first round, okay, and it was going to be explosive. Um, and so what happened was um, Daniel had this brilliant tactic. He would score come in with a punch because Zelk is just the 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 range on his legs were just incredible in his arms um so Daniel would punch him grab him pick up a warning punch him grab him pick up a warning so he'd be getting one point every time he moved in or if it was a flying punch it would be two points then he'd pick up a warning so he'd always be scoring more points than he was and then then when he when he got obviously the accumulation of three warnings he'd be deducted a point, but he was always scoring before he grabbed and he beat Zog. It was just just the way he did it because it was the only way that he, well, I guess at that time, I mean, his skill set just went through the roof after that. But um, yeah. Um, so you can see how, how people have used it in the past as an advantage. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sound. It doesn't sound like it was a very exciting match in terms of like as, as a spectacle. You know, like every time. No, as a spectacle, no. A but whole, tactically, you know, yeah. When you know these characters, you know, tactically, it was. Um, you know, it was. I think it was at that time. It was the only way because I think Daniel had just come up from. I think a year earlier he was minus sixty three or something. He was like a lightweight. Yeah, I've seen it. Just like any time I've looked, I've looked back at the results at that time, and you see minus sixty three champion, and then like a year later minus eighty, you're going, "Oh my god, that's crazy!" <laughs> I know. Like to not just so, move up and not not to just just to just put on that amount, not not just putting on that amount of weight, but to be yeah. winning after putting like after winning after going up to up through the divisions as well is is crazy. Yeah. So I, th- I think at that time that that that's how he managed to get around that, and then obviously after that his skill set just changed. And um, yeah, for me Daniel Jawa was an incredible competitor. Just the the, the memorable fights uh, of of him, and and literally winning a fight 
at the end, in the dying seconds, with two jump back kicks to the body, literally just just changing the decision like that. Yeah, absolutely incredible. I mean, the the, the guy, the guy's ability, fantastic. Yeah. And what do you think of the, I suppose, the, the level of contact that's allowed? I know the, the minus points that you see for contact compared to maybe before where a lot more was low goal. So, Jamie, this is quite interesting that you asked me this because um, one of my roles um, on the ITF board has been to create a concussion policy for the ITF, which has just been approved. And, and we're, we're going to be discussing it with all the committees over um, the next, well, hopefully we're going to organize a meeting very soon with it. Because this is something that we've never had. We've never had a concussion policy and we need it. In all sports, you need to have it. Um, so I've done quite a bit of research into, into it. And although, so I, I, I'm looking more on, on, on the side of the effects of the contact rather than, you know, you know how, how do you deem what is a powerful punch? What is, what is a, an excessive Punch. I mean, you know, we can talk about loading the shoulder. You can talk about, you know, loading the the, the hips for 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 a dolio. But most most of you guys kick so fast that if you caught someone playing on the face without, you know, kind of not even like just like the the edge of the toes. But if you caught them, you'd probably knock them out because you're so fast. And not that you want to. It's just that you're you're so incredibly fast. So that sometimes I think is used as a vehicle to be able to score other points later. It's not necessarily you're, you're looking to score because it's very difficult to, to score the really clean point like that. Um, so I think it comes down to, um, yeah, I, th I think you've you got to look at the person that's received the, the, the technique. And I think that that's really important to look at that. Um, when you consider the amount of explosiveness that's in a fight, there's always going to be some techniques that are going to kind of be let go a little bit more than others. I think as well, when you look at the different weight categories, I mean, you're, you're microweight and then you're thinking about someone like um, Zach Espy. The amount of power that he generates with what he does is, gonna, is, is absolutely immense as well. Um, so it has to be relative when you're umpiring, it has to be relative, you know, with the, the amount of power that, that these bigger guys can, can, can kind of do and perform with. But, um, I think the most important thing is to protect the competitor, um, and the decision making process um, after that, well, that, that's, that's, that's going to come down to the, the, the circumstances of what's, what happens. I, I remember a situation, it was on my square in 2017, and I think it was, there was another Irish competitor, microweight, who got disqualified. Thomas, yeah, Thomas. Fogger, Thomas, yeah. was it? Yeah, Thomas, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but there was a lot of talk about it, and, and it was, yeah, it's a very, very tough decision. I wasn't the centre referee at the time, I was, I was sitting behind the table. Yeah. But I, I think he was he was disqualified for it in the end. A body kick. Um, it was a turning kick to the body and the guy said he couldn't continue. And, you know, it's. Yeah, it was. It was but it, it, I remember it being a really hard body kick. And it was it was a real thump. Um, but then, you know, you weigh up, you know, Jamie, we, we, we're doing a martial art. You know, how much contact do we allow? We don't want to see people getting knocked out. We don't want to see that. That's not what we do. Um, 
We want to see it controlled, but we want to see power. We want to see speed. We want to see explosiveness. So it was a really, I think it was a very tough decision and it could have quite easily gone either way. But I think it was, a lot of it was down to the other competitors saying that they didn't want to continue and then what the centre referee at the time felt. I know. Well, I I think I said this to Nicholas Dessard on the last one, like if you can't take a body kick at a world championships, then you shouldn't be on the floor. Like in terms of like a turning kick, you know what I mean? Like... I understand. Yeah, you, I understand being winded. I understand being winded and all that. But to, for a guy to be disqualified because he landed a, a clean kick to the, the guy's body and he said he couldn't continue is you know that's a bit much. Like whatever about knocking the guy out and him and obviously the referees and the the, the medical team saying he, this guy can't continue. But mm. a kick to the body that one no I thought like was. And then this is the difference between the levels that we've got. Because you've got some countries that are really well prepared. Ireland were amazingly prepared in 2017. They always are now. You know, you guys are super prepared. But there are some teams that aren't prepared to the same level. Um, so you're going to have some people that are going to step on the mat that maybe are the best in their country, but they're nowhere near the standard. So they have the opportunity to compete at a World Championships. Maybe the World Championships is too much for them. They should be starting at a more continental level. Um, or international open tournaments or, or World Cups, things like that. that. That's maybe where they need to be starting rather than going straight for a World Championships and they're not ready for it. So you have a mismatch. But then if you're a world-class competitor and you're against somebody from another country that's not, you can tell they're not very well prepared. But of course you want to win. Yeah, You do what you can to win, but you've got to make sure that you do it safely because you, know, you could take the person to pieces. So yeah. there, there, there is, I mean, I'm looking at it obviously from an umpire's point of view, but as a coach, I would have been gutted if my competitor had got disqualified. Yeah. Like Thomas did. Yeah. Like I said, like that, for, like I said, a body kick, you know, I understand guys, maybe, you know, you land a hard kick and or like a kick to the head, strong punch to the head, the person is maybe might have a concussion or something that way and you go, right, okay, well, they can continue, right? you kind of maybe crossed the line there so you're disqualified I can I, I'm not a big fan of that rule either to some degree but but I can understand why that might why you might disqualify somebody there like that for a body kick it's uh it's tough um like you said I think it kind of I think that that is the thing like you said it's very dependent on the level of both guys and and the kind of match like even like I've spoken about this one a couple of times uh, in Germany um Bartosz was fighting Sebastian in the first round of the fight, uh, the first round of the the plus eighty fives, and like it was a good fight. Two big, strong guys who were going at it first round of the world championships, and they both ended up on two minus points with about thirty seconds to go, like maybe a bit less. But it kind of it changed the fight then because both guys are on eggshells then, and and it, they're not really like, well, I, I'm afraid to go to the, the hands here because. It's, I could I could get disqualified and it changes it whereas I think like it was like it was fairly even I thought maybe there was mm-hmm. no need to jump straight away in like every it was like every time they came together a stop minus point for it like every time that they came together there was a stop and one either one of them got a minus point and it kind of felt like that maybe just leave it go a little bit it's even it's first round of the world championships they're big guys leave it go a little bit I think I think as well. <sighs> The, the thing that we've got to always look for, and I think now even more so, is going to be you know, the safety of the competitors. Um, these guys are competing at world championships, but they are very experienced as well. So, you know, they, they still need to have that ability to be able to 
look after each other. The last thing that the, the ITF wants and the last thing that any team wants from any country um, is to see something really bad happen where, you know, you, 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 you've got quite obviously a mismatch of some kind and somebody just doesn't get out of the way. Most of the big guys, they can get out of the way of something or they can soak it up. Um, and the little guys definitely have the ability and the speed to react and move really fast and to not engage when they, when they don't need to. But if there are people out there who are less experienced, who aren't able to get out of the way and they get hit by one of these techniques, we just have to be, I think we just have to be very careful. And, and um, so I'm going to kind of, I've got to put my concussion policy hat on here and just, we, 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 we've got to do whatever we can and to, to protect the competitors, to make sure that it's still competitive, that it is dynamic, that it's exciting, but look after people. I think that the discussions with, with like the coaches committee and the umpires committee and the umpires committee and the um, athletes committees, the other committees that are going to be involved over the next few weeks regarding this i think are going to be really important to get some kind of clarity of the level of where 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 we're at with this contact is tough jamie it's tough um i understand that yeah no, and sometimes it's it's how it, how, it, how it sounds do you, do you know anything about wacko do you know much about wacko at all and how that works with um with their contact levels um uh, again it's like obviously points is kind of obvious it's point it's touch uh pretty much um the light contact it's like that there's a there's quite a, a lot there's quite a lot let go but it's still it's still you can see there's a difference between that and the full contact how they define it i'm not totally sure i'd have to i would have to look into it and maybe speak to some of the guys on how they define it the, when it is mm. when it starts to become excessive contact but like they they definitely allow a, a more contact than we do but then they also have but they have a but that still has less contact than their full contact if that makes sense right so so i don't know um, yeah i'd have to look into it a bit more um maybe maybe the, the the equipment as well we need to look at our equipment because i remember years and years ago i mean i, I don't know if you competed ever competed with macho the the diner punch no it was like i haven't thin dipped foam like this and it was just so thin that you, you could feel the knuckles coming all the way through and it's improved now we've got this big padding here on the front but of course the glove is still very light and you know, and I think in in um, other martial arts, they use maybe bigger gloves that are a little bit heavier, so you can't, you know, you, the, when the when the contact is made, it's not as, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't create as much uh, impact. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, and like I said, it's it's tough because sometimes a punch can, it can look powerful, it can sound powerful, but who knows? I suppose the person who really knows is the person who's on the receiving end, you know, and um, standing back might you might get a full picture. And in terms of then, like in terms of like the concussions and the concussion protocol and, and guidelines, I think it is good, and I do think we do we do need something around that. Um, but but how often is there any data there to say like how many concussions would you see at a at a, one of our tournaments and one of our major championships? Yeah, so um, I, I got I got somebody involved with that um, who's a um, who's a paramedic and also is a concussion specialist. Worked uh, at the 2012 Olympics as well, um, <clears throat> and he also he he was in charge of all the medical at the 2012 World Cup in Brighton with me. Runs uh, all of our the, the the British events that we run the Open British events um, down in England. He he's in charge of the the the, the medical side of that. Now, 
Um, so yeah, he went through quite a lot of data that, um, you know, he, he, unfortunately, because the data isn't recorded, you have to go and find the data yourself. Um, and that's one of the things that with that is in the policy that the data has to be recorded, um, and kept on file. Um, doesn't have to be connected to someone's name. We just need to have the data of what's happened. Um, and, and, uh, also there's a, um, return to training protocol as well in, included in that. So, yeah, it's um, the certainly what 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 we've looked at. I mean, I think normally in a European or World Championships, we're probably not going to see a lot of concussions. I think you're going to see more open, you're more more concussions in an open event than you are at the top level. Um, I would say, yeah, it. it Certainly from the from the medical documents that I've seen in the past and when I because I was in 2011 2012 I was the um, the, the chair of the ATF tournament umpire committee I uh, running the euros in Slovakia and Slovenia yeah. um, so I, I saw all the, all the all the documents at the end uh, with, with regards to all the medical procedures that went on and the number of concussions is quite low it is quite low so I don't think that the the policy in itself is going to be throwing loads of people out. It's not going to happen. But what it does, it just gives us a protective level of security that we currently don't have because any, you know, um, international world governing body will ensure that every single sport has got some form of concussion policy Um because we, we think about the repercussions in the future, you know, they're, they're even talking about it in football right now, about the amount of contact um, from the number of headers that people do when they head the ball yeah. and, the, and the, the consequences when they get older with regards to dementia. So we just have to be very careful with this. Um, I don't think it's going to affect the competitions that much. Probably if it affects any competition, it'll be the World Cup rather yeah. than the World Championships and, and the European Championships because the World Cup, you have slightly less experienced people there. Yeah, but even I suppose like the challenge from our point of view would be like like I suppose when there's a in rugby and I know now even like I said in football and soccer it's going to be the same where the the player can leave and go for the HIA yeah. and that obviously takes however long it could take you know whereas I suppose for us you have your three minutes kind of time for the injury stoppage and i don't know uh, can you carry out a hia in that in that length of time i wouldn't imagine so um so are you stopping the match like if it's mid-match and you think this guy or this girl is concussed can you properly assess it in the time that's given and then are you allowing them back into the match and then if they can't continue then is the other competitor disqualified and and maybe they're not showing effects in this match but maybe they might win and then go into the next match or or even like maybe they lost an individual and are they fighting team and are they showing effects and obviously my understanding is what with concussion is it's not even the initial concussion that can be the damages if the contact's taken soon after like if you don't like you said the return to, to training and all that if that's not followed properly that's where the real damage can, can occur so I suppose like we do there have are, a challenge there are a challenge lots of variables here yeah. there's loads of variables and, and, and they're, they're all things that we, we've had to look into we've got a process now that, 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 that's in place that as soon as something happens there's a procedure that, that happens with regards to the medical staff they speak to the competitor there's a certain set of questions called the Maddox questions the modified Maddox questions that they ask which are about short term memory so that, that helps them to, to find out straight away if they are not concussed 
um, yeah, no, sorry. It doesn't, no, it doesn't tell them if they're not concussed. It tells them if they are concussed. And then afterwards, they, 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 there's, some, there's some other tests, but also they, there's a conversation that will be had with um, the, the centre referee, with the uh, umpires and also with a coach to ask what happened and to see, and because also the umpires will be trained in recognising concussion as well from, you know, from a contact point of view, from, from, from watching. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that is still going to be under discussion anyway. And, and fortunately we've got time on our hands because we haven't got any big events coming up just yet. So this is why the discussions with the committee is going to be really important. Um, a concussion doesn't definitely mean the other person's going to be disqualified. Somebody could be hit and then hit the back of their head on the, on the floor and get concussed from the hit on the, on the floor. It's not going to be necessarily from the punch that they've been concussed. It can be from that. It can also be down to how the action happened. If the competitor moved in um, whilst the technique was being thrown, you know, the, the umpires will always look, you know, was the, was the technique being thrown first and then it hit the competitor or did the competitor come in as the technique was being thrown? So they'll, they'll always look at that as well. Um, and I, th I think that the, we're, we're, on, we're on the right lines. We're on the right lines to find a solution. And I think by talking with the committees, rather than just saying, this is the rule, follow the rule, we talk to the committees, the umpire, the coaches, the athletes committee. So we get everybody's point of view. So we we find a common ground where this is going to work, where we can implement the policy. Yeah. And I suppose, like, to some degree, especially, I suppose, at Worlds and European Championships, it might not be a big problem. But it's better maybe to have the policy and have procedures in place than for when it is a problem, you know. It's better to have yourself covered and say, well, like, this is what we're going to do, this is what we need. We know we need to do and what's going to happen if the if the event arises, then, then to assure that's not really a problem or something we have to worry about. And then before you know it, somebody is suffering a concussion and they're, it's not dealt with the right way. Yeah, I remember. I don't, I don't know if you remember in 2015 um, in uh, uh, Yeah, at the World Championships with Julio Carlos. Yeah, yeah. And he wanted to continue. He I know was, you got he, up, yeah. he was up bouncing around. I want to get going. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there would be a whole process going around about that with, with regards to well, there's two things. First thing is. Can that competitor continue for the rest of the tournament doing other events? Because there is a risk. Because if you if you're in training, right, and you get hit in the head and you get, or say for example, you, you get concussed, um, you're probably told by your doctor that you can't do any activity for three weeks. No sporting activity at all. Yeah. So if you get concussed on the Friday of an event and you still got team events on the Sunday. You can't do any activity because there's a risk. Yeah. Even if it's team power or team pattern, because something could happen. So there's going to be there's going to be a look at you know that competitor may need to be withdrawn completely, and then the return to to, to training procedure you know that 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 is in place where people will need to follow a certain procedure to make sure they get back to training safely. They can't just go home and then start training again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, yeah. So there's a whole discussion. You can imagine this is a big yeah, thing. Yeah, it's it. It's a, yeah. yeah, it's it. I, I don't envy it anyway. Like you know, it's a. It seems like a like a, a tough area to be to be involved in and trying to like to to tread through it all and, and make sure it makes sense and make make it work. It's been a labour 
of love over the last couple of years for me. Um, I've, I've worked really hard to, to get this ready. Um, we want to, the, and the priority is always going to be the competitor. Make sure the competitor is safe. Yeah. That's always good. It's, it's, it's always going to come up uh, up to that point. That, that, that's the most important point. Yeah. I suppose you mentioned it already, the organising the World Cup in 2012, and you've already mentioned you wore many hats. So you've had a coach, umpire, competitor, you've been a tournament organiser. Uh, what was that experience like? Yeah, uh, it was very mixed. So what happened was, uh, obviously, 2010, um, the World Cup was um, was cancelled. It was supposed to be in Las Vegas uh, because of the sad passing of Grandmaster Tran. Um and I think 2012 was supposed to be maybe Brazil or somewhere like that. And then they just withdrew. And so there was no, there's no candidate. And um, so I, I, I put forward a, an application for it because, um, you know, Brighton is a fantastic place to, to, to host an event. It never had an event like that before. Um, and yeah, it's a great event. I, th- I think the event, I mean, people that were there, I mean, it was the biggest event at its time. Um, we had over 1,500 competitors, you know, from um, well over 50 countries. And uh, that Saturday night was buzzing. The, the whole event was incredible. Um, and I, I, got a, I, I did take a lot of positives from it, but I took a few negatives as well because it was very, very difficult to organize. Um, and... I think my planning could have been better um, and my delegation could have been better as well. So I, I, I recognized I made a few mistakes, but I believe we delivered an amazing event um, at the highest level and a very memorable one that people still talk about now. And there's still videos uh, of it going around. And, I, you know, I've still got um, I've, I've still got some DVDs of the finals, actually. So it is really it's a, it, was a, it was a good event. Yeah, definitely. It was a big set. Yeah, it was. A... It was a massive event, you know. There was a, like the biggest tournament I was. I don't know. I don't know if it still is, but I definitely at the time was the biggest tournament I was at by a, by a long way at that time. Um, so yeah, it was pretty crazy. Like got divisions with a hundred people in it. You know, it's uh, <laughs> you know, if if we could do something like that again, it'd be great. I don't know how. If I don't how, know if that happened. How did you get on with it? Yeah, uh, look in terms of results, um, it doesn't it doesn't sit too too fondly with the results. Uh, didn't win any medal, uh, unfortunately, and it was. It was one of those where I felt like everybody else around me was winning medals and uh, I wasn't. So one of those, uh, you know, it was it was a learning curve, I suppose, that one was. But the thing is, you've got to go through that period to be able to get through to the successful period. You know, you've got to, you've got to see that. And some mm-hmm. people, they'll, they'll, they'll rise to it and some people, they'll just go, ah, oh, it's, it's not for me. I, I'll never get to do it. But, you know, to, to rise to that and to see it as just purely experience, because that's all it is. And you learn so much more from when you lose than when you win. I mean, winning is nicer, of course. But yeah, you, you learn. You're learning so much more about yourself. Yeah, and you you did you did the work, so it's good. Yeah, it's a nice place. Nice place for a, for an event. It was nice. It was very nice. Yeah, it was a. Uh, like I said, I, I don't know, but I have ever went been to Brighton, but so that's it's one of those. It's a it's a, it was a good excuse to be to go and see. You know. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd, I'd I'd do another event though. I think I've I've done. I did. I've done. I've organised one European Cup and one World Cup. And I think that I've 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 done my bit for the ITF with regards to organising those kind of events. Um, they are they are big events. I mean, you know, you know, you've got um, a, a great team of guys who are going to be organising the World Cup in Ireland for 2024. It's going to be a massive event for sure. 
Um, but you know, you, you have a team of people doing that. I, I was literally on my own. So um, yeah. 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 I can imagine that's tough. Cause like that, cause of, like with Adrian being involved and all, I was kind of, obviously hearing about how things were going and, and bits and pieces along the way. So I knew about some of the steps and it definitely sounds like that. Yeah. That a, a team was needed that I couldn't imagine one person, like, like I could, like that, one person on their own to do that. Well, I'd imagine it was tough, you know, imagine yeah. it was tough. But some great positive feelings at the end of it. And um, yeah, it was, uh, and also it was, a, it was a nice event because we had um, our first grandmaster in England being promoted, Grandmaster Ellis. So that was nice. So there's some nice little bits in there that were really enjoyable. Um, and I, I think the, the camaraderie that you saw within the teams was really, because the way the hall was set up, it's quite similar to the hall that you got in Dublin, actually. It's kind of like in that yeah. U shape with all, all the all the bleachers at the top. So that that, that was really good. Um, that worked well. And seeing all the teams singing and chanting, ah, so it'd be a great memory for me. For always. Yeah. Um, I suppose well, you've had a you've had an hip a hip operation and came back to to train and all. What what was that what was that experience like to to be able to train and then get from struggling to walk, yeah. I suppose, after surgery to maybe to, to back to training and kicking. So I, I, my, my last event, I, I competed as an advanced senior in the 2014 World Cup in Jamaica. And um, I, got, I picked up an injury about a month before I pulled my calf and I, I, couldn't, I just couldn't train. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't walk properly. No, it was actually about six weeks before. So I was rehabilitating that, getting massages and resting it, but I still had to get some kind of movement. And I was still determined to go because it was going to be my last event. So I ended up going and I was still like hobbling as I got onto the plane. And um, I got treated by this wonderful lady called Wendy who uh, really looked after me. Um, but then I still competed. I had sparring on the first day. Um, and what I realized was, and I, in fact, I was fine. By the time I got on the mat, I could move. But then I threw one kick and then my calf just went again. And I was like, like this. Um, now, fortunately, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a right. I, I was so easy to read as a fighter, easy to read, like, you know, like, like a book, really. I was always a right leg legged kicker. So I'd always have my right leg in front if I was going to kick. And if I was going to punch, I'd have my left hand in front. So I was jabbing with my left. Oh, you're one of them. My left hand. <laughs> so easy. So easy. But, you know, it, it kind of worked for me and I made, I made it work for me. But I, 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 I couldn't put my right foot down. So I literally had to fight with all of my weight on my left leg and I'm kicking with my right, but I couldn't put my right leg down because my right calf had hurt. Um, and I went through every single round like that and then resting it, icing it, resting it, icing it. Um, and um, yeah, so in the end, I got into the final and I, I won the final um, against Argentina. And then I went for, and I thought, oh, great, calf is great, brilliant. Well, let's carry on. So I did patterns. So I did patterns as well. I mean, normally I shouldn't even be able to put my foot down, but I did the patterns, got into the final and lost against Lillian, which is okay. I don't mind losing against Lillian. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, and I thought, yeah, I'm doing great. Let's do power tests. So I did power tests. Then, I, then I, I didn't get anything in the power test, but then I went for the special technique, which was the most stupid decision that I could have made because you're talking about doing flying high kick and, and the flying side kick. And it's just, you know, I think I just built up so much confidence in myself. I felt I was indestructible because I managed to get that far <laughs> with that injury. 
So I, I went for the flying sidekick and I just landed really badly. And I, um, I tore uh, my meniscus in my left knee. So then, um, yeah, then I really couldn't walk. And then when I got home, uh, I had an operation on my, my left meniscus. And as a Taekwondo instructor, you just like to teach. So the day after my, my operation, I was teaching in the class and I should have had like at least seven to 14 days of just doing nothing, but I was teaching. Um, so what happened was the byproduct of that was um, I, I started walking. I, I, I lost my gait a little bit when I was walking and, um, and I wasn't, I was putting too much weight on one side and my knee wasn't supported very well. So my left hip just started to grind more and more. And then um, I think there's a lot of degeneration on there anyway. So I lost all the cartilage and it was bone on bone. Um, and the, and the, when I saw the x-ray, you could actually see like the jagged edges and it was so much pain. I, I couldn't get down on the floor. I, you know, I had young kids. I couldn't play on the ground with them. Couldn't do anything. I'd kick and it was like someone stuck a knife in my, in my hip. So I went for the hip operation. Unfortunately, because I said that it was, you know, part of my my income teaching taekwondo was, was was so important they they managed to get me um a hip operation within two months okay and i had seven weeks of rehab and the the surgeon was like right so you know we're going to give you i've got a ceramic hip so it's really smooth and about a, i think it's a medium-sized one and he said, you know, just if, you, if you're really serious about this, stay on two crutches for seven weeks. Now, normally when you have a hip operation, they get you off two crutches within two to three weeks. And then, you know, you're, you're literally on the one crutch for a little bit of time and then you're, you're walking freely. But he said seven weeks on two crutches. They gave me a, a program of rehab and then I created my own program of rehab as well to work on top of that. And I just literally, you know, I think... One thing that's really good about being having been a competitor is that when you look at your your training plan, you schedule everything, you count the number of reps, you count the number of sets. You're so used to doing that. So I was doing that with my rehab. And so I got to the point where my hip got stronger and stronger. And now I can I can do everything. I can do 360 dolio. I can do twimyo yopchagi, twimyo dutchagi, anything without any issues at all. The one that I, the only one that I'm, that I won't do is the two direction kick from um, Juche, yeah. Sangbang Chagi. I won't do that. But apart from that, everything else, no problem. And the hip feels great. The muscles are really strong around it. And uh, yeah, I ended up becoming the poster boy for hip replacements in the, in the <laughs> clinic because the, uh, the surgeon was so happy. So um, yeah, cause I, I created like a blog of, of going, going through my, like my daily routine and everything from the, from the point that I went in for the operation until um, it was, I was recovered. And so, yeah, he sends everybody to my blog now when, when people are unsure. Yeah. So yeah, hips fully functional. It's great. Yeah. That's great. Cause for somebody like like that, especially in the, well, I suppose in any martial art, but particularly Taekwondo, the hip, the hips are one of the most important things you need. Like, so to, when they, when they give out, you sometimes might think that it's the end of the world, but you, you, you the fact you came back and are able to do like I said, you got to look after the yourself. Bang then. Yeah, absolutely. You got to you got to look after yourself. The thing is, you know, I I went through when I was living in Malaysia. We trained on concrete. There was there was no soft mats or anything. Literally concrete. Um, I trained on tennis courts. I trained on like the really hard surfaces, and we're doing like crazy stuff. Then in those days, I was I was young and 
you know, my instructor would say, do something. I'd say, yeah, of course. And I just do it. I wouldn't question. I just get on and do it. And, and, you know, you, you got the amount of impact on, on that surface, uh, probably assisted in the de degeneration of the, of the hip. So yeah. we don't get that so much now, I think, because you've got like sprung floors and you've got, um, you know, matted floors that you, you train on. So hopefully we'll see a little bit less of it. Yeah. You said I don't even like, I don't even like training on timber floors. Never mind going on concrete. Like, I had gone. rough concrete. It would literally rip my feet to shreds. Yeah, unbelievable. We 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 were going to go to um we were going to the Belgian Open in 1995, traveling from Kuala Lumpur, and I was with the Malaysian team at the time, and uh, we went to train one evening, and the hall that we'd normally train on, which was the concrete floor, was being used by the Tai Chi people. So um, Grandmaster Tan says, oh, it's okay. We'll go and train on the tennis court. So have you ever tried doing a reverse turning kick on a tennis court? No. Nope. Well, <laughs> it's a, tennis courts are very grippy. They're there for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> so I ripped my feet to shreds. The, literally, the skin was hanging off. There's blood coming out all over the place. And then what happened was we, we did loads and loads of reverse turning kicks on there. Um, and and you know, it was quite tough training. We went back into the hall when the Tai Chi people had finished. And I had this, because I used to have the, 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 the diner punch and diner kick, like mac, macho um, dip foam footwear. Um, I always had some of this uh, like electrical tape to fix it because it would always come apart. So you kind of like wrap it up and, and you'd kind of, kind of find a way to fix it. So I had blood coming out of my foot. I put my foot pad on because Grandma's time wanted us to do some sparring blood. And then, then I'd literally just tape this tape, this electrical tape around my foot with blood seeping out. Um, and we just carried on sparring. And then whoever I was fighting, you could tell who I was fighting against because they had blood patches everywhere. <laughs> but, um, but then that was like two weeks before going to Belgium. So I still had some, um, you know, my, my feet were still a bit cut before competing there. But um, yeah, we're, we're, we're quite fortunate now, I think, with the surfaces that we've got. Yeah, yeah. I think like that the hard floors maybe build build some character, but but uh, but you, you pay for it in the long run. I think maybe you know. Definitely, yeah. yeah. But also, I think the type of stretching that we used to do as well. We, we used to do a lot of ballistic stretching in the old days, whereas now it's more dynamic stretching. And um, you know, I, I think that the the just the way that the coaches are trained to train their competitors is completely different to how it was, you know, thirty years ago. Um, they're, they're far more experienced. And I think the majority, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it's like in, in Ireland, but the majority of people, I think, will have um, some kind of fitness background or fitness qualification. Um, I know some people do in England, and, but some people don't. But I think that it, for me, it's an essential part of being a Taekwondo instructor, you have to have some kind of fitness understanding, you need to have a, if you if you have a, a, a fitness qualification of some kind, well, that's going to help you because Without that, you're pretty much just repeating stuff that you've had done to you or you're guessing. Yeah. Yeah, that is a big thing, I think. Um I think Taekwondo's getting better. I think I, I think slowly martial arts, combat sport, like I are like the the training is developing, I suppose, you know, you know, like a big thing is like you said that, that has gone on is oh well if I don't know what to do, I'll just do what what I did when I was a kid and what my instructor did with me and they were doing what their instructor did with them and it just gets passed down that way with no real thought then of maybe why you're doing it and is it actually effective and, a, and a, an efficient way to train so hopefully and I think it is across all sports and, and Taekwondo is the same that that's it is changing 
and people are becoming more aware of the, the more the better ways of of training absolutely and that, and, that, and that will you know ultimately you know look after the competitor and give them some longevity in in, in their in their career you know enjoy enjoy competing as, as much as they possibly can yeah i suppose look before we finish uh one more question i tend to ask everybody uh you might have mentioned them already uh if you had to pick a favorite competitor to watch that you'd like to watch uh who would it, who would it be uh there, there are a lot, and I've had the opportunity to coach some incredible competitors. Matt Cadle, Neil Ernest, um, you know, the, the, there's other people that I've coached in the past. My own students, seeing my own students win was, has been absolutely amazing. Um, so you're, you're talking about the most exciting competitor, or how are you, how are you posing this question to me? Uh, just do you like to watch? Whatever like you decide, the person you like to watch the most. Maybe we, we'll give you maybe more than one. Yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. two or three. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, I loved watching Katja Solovey. Yeah, she she'd be my favorite. Absolutely amazing. Um, just the ability, the vers- versatility, the speed. Um, yeah. I'll never remember. I'm oh, sorry. I'm no, sorry. I never forget the, um, the 360 dollar she did in the final in Sweden. Yeah um that was that was incredible was it 2013 10 no no 2000 2010 yes yeah, sorry, it was, yeah. The, it was the first swedish event wasn't it and then we had uh they, they they went back and did it 2013 afterwards so yeah um and i think i think it's got to be daniel jawa yeah I think yeah, he, yeah. So Katja Solovey and Daniel Jawa, they're, they're, they're the the two competitors. If they were fight, they were fighting. I'd I'd be ringside. Yeah, unfortunately, I've had to. Uh, Daniel Jawa had stopped. Right, had kind of stopped towards when I kind of came to the European. He kind of stopped competing around there. Twenty ten, I think, was maybe his last. Maybe twenty eleven in New Zealand, and he kind of stepped mm-hmm. away from competing. So a lot of the stuff I've seen from him was on, has been on on videos. But uh, yeah, it's a shame. I think I we get to see him ringside. I suppose you know. He would leave things to the last 10 seconds and just turn the fight on its head. Yeah. yeah, yes. yeah a, great, a good watch. And anybody who, who has, like, the, uh, lots of people who said that they've seen him, that he, he is their, he's their favorite. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, two good picks there, Katja, Katja and Daniel Joa. Yeah, Katja would be my favorite across, you know, male, female, it doesn't matter. Katja, I think, is, was my favorite. Uh, the way she fought was, um, was, was savage. Yeah, machine, absolute yeah. machine. <laughs> Yeah. So like I said, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks, man, for coming on. Thanks for giving your time. And I've uh, really enjoyed the chat. Uh, like I said, you you wear a number of different hats. So we've got a, a perspectives from a couple of different point of views. So thanks, man, for coming on. It's been a real pleasure, Jamie. Thanks very much for asking me. Lovely stuff. Uh, hopefully, uh, best of luck with going back to in-person training and that and maybe back inside training uh, pretty soon. And uh, hopefully we won't be too far behind. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully we'll get, we'll get to see each other again at some event in the near future yeah hopefully so hopefully so take care cheers thanks a lot bye bye all the best a reminder to check out today's sponsors TKD Wear at tkdwear.com and use the promo code BLACKBELTER for 10% off all details are in the description and see you next week